leaders in Europe thought that missionary work was an absolute waste of time and money. Up until the early 1800s, churches in Europe, for the most part, weren't sending out missionaries, weren't supporting missionaries, and frankly had the opinion that if you're going off to India, going to Africa, uh, going to South America, it really is just a waste of time and money. But all of that changed as God raised up a young man by the name of William Carey. William Carey was born about 12 years before the United States became a nation. He was born in a small little rural town in central Great Britain. He grew up there in central England, poor. As a teenager, he became a cobbler, and so his trade was making shoes. And what he did early in life as he began working as a cobbler, as a teenager, he gave his life to Christ, and one day he decided he wanted to make a little globe. And so he took some shoe leather and some thread, and he fashioned for himself a crude little globe. And oftentimes, William Carey would hold that little globe in his hands, and he would weep over it. And it broke his heart to think that there were people in India and in Africa and South America and Australia and other parts of the world who were going to go to hell without ever having someone share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. And so he would weep over this little globe. God had given him a heart for the lost. In his spare time, even though he didn't have much education, he taught himself how to read New Testament Greek. And then he taught himself how to read a Biblical Hebrew. And he eventually became a pastor. And he went to a pastor's meeting one day, and he made the case that the pastors and the church leaders in England should be sending out missionaries around the world so people could hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And one of those older pastors interrupted him. He stood up and said, Young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, He will do it with or without you and me. And William Carey sat down. He heard that type of comment over and over. God isn't interested in missions. But he was undaunted. In his church, he preached within a year of that man shouting him down. He preached a message. And in that message, he shared these now famous words that Christians have been inspired by over the years, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Within a year of saying those words for the first time, William Carey got together his wife and his kids and they moved to India. They moved to India, and over the, last, over the next 40 years of his life, William Carey gave his life to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with the people in India, most of whom had never heard the name of Jesus. And over those 40 years, he led 700 people to a saving knowledge of Christ. He and his team translated the entire Bible into the six major Indian languages, And in the heels of his ministry, after he died, in the early 1800s, there was a flame of missionary passion that was awakened in the hearts of the pastors in England and across Europe. And in the 200 years since William Carey died, millions upon millions of people have risen to the occasion to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Despite the criticism, despite the naysayers, They've risen to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And we as a church stand in that long, proud tradition of expecting great things from God and attempting great things for God. Amen? Open your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 15. 
We're going to be in Acts chapter 15 today, starting in verse 1. If you're borrowing one of those blue Bibles from the rack in front of you, you'll find this on page 1094-1094. As always, we have some message notes for you in the bulletin. We encourage you to pull those out along with a pen or pencil, jot down some notes along the way. I encourage you this week to go back and hit some of those highlights of what we'll be talking about over the next few minutes as God opens our minds and hearts to His Word. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 1. I'm up here without my glasses today. Anybody have a pair of cheaters I can borrow? Thank you, Peggy. All right. Ooh, leopard print. Are you still there? Okay, we'll be fine. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for the privilege of studying your word today. You are an awesome God. And we just pray, O God, that you would unlock our minds and hearts to what you want to teach us as we look at this church of Antioch once again and are inspired by what takes place in this chapter that literally helped to change the course of missions in this world. Millions upon millions of people have had an opportunity to hear and receive the gospel in large part because of what takes place here in Acts 15. Teach us, O Lord, today, we ask in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. So Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 1, it says, Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God? By putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Saul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written, After this I will return. And rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it 
that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who hear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have known that they have known for ages. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas called Barsabas and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from, our, from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives by the name, for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you, With anything beyond the following requirements, you are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. The men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. May God bless us as we study His Word today. Now, last Sunday we took a closer look at the church of Antioch there in Acts chapter 11. And as we saw last week, thank you, Peggy. As we saw last week, the church at Antioch was a out-of-the-box type of church. Their ministry was groundbreaking. Up until that point in Acts 11, all the other churches and all the other cities were primarily sharing the good news of Jesus with Jewish people. And when they branched out beyond Jewish people, in the case of Peter in Acts 10, they would share the gospel with people who at least were familiar with Judaism, who believed in God, who to a large extent obeyed the moral laws of the Old Testament. They just hadn't fully converted to Judaism. But here in Acts 11, we saw that these Christians in Antioch did something absolutely revolutionary. They basically said, I don't care if you have any Jewish blood in you whatsoever. Regardless of whether or not you've even heard of the Old Testament, regardless of whether or not you obey any of those Old Testament laws, we're going to tell you about the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And they began freely sharing the good news of Jesus. And it's one thing that's revolutionary to share the good news with people who had never heard it before. It's even more revolutionary once those individuals accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior to actually embrace them and let them come into the church. You can imagine in some churches that would be pandemonium if you had people from such vastly different backgrounds and vastly different moral lifestyles coming together, all having accepted the grace of God through Christ and trying to learn how to get along and do church together as they grow in their faith. It was a revolutionary church. A church in Antioch paved the way for the gospel to reach you and me because you and I, most of us are not Jewish, are we? And we're thankful as Gentiles that Antioch paved the way for us to hear the gospel and become Christians as well. The Antioch Christians, they were the first ones to be called Christians. They lived up to that name. 
as they did ministry outside of the box and did what Jesus had intended from the very beginning, to come and die for whosoever would believe in Him, whosoever would repent of their sins, whosoever were willing to make Him Lord of their life. Jesus in John 3.16 never intended for us to interpret that verse as being, for God so loved only the Jews that He gave His one and only Son. It says, for God so loved the, the world, the whole world, black, white, Hispanic, brown, black, white, yellow, polka dot, tall, short, young, old, skinny, chubby, regardless of if you have a Muslim background or a Jewish background or an atheistic background, the gospel of Jesus Christ is freely shared with all men, women, and children on planet Earth. They were called Christians first. You see, they believed that Jesus is for everyone. Isn't that good? They believe that Jesus is for everyone. They believe that the gospel is for everyone. And so, therefore, they believe that the church of Jesus Christ is for everyone. Now, sometimes that can be uncomfortable. Sometimes there are arguments because we have such vastly different backgrounds and experiences and cultures that we come from. But they believe that because Jesus is for everyone, that the church must be for everyone even when it's hard. Every day the Antioch Christians were expecting great things from God and they were attempting great things for God, including sending Paul on his very first missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts chapters 13 and 14. Paul and Barnabas went out to northwest Asia and they were sharing the gospel on the island of Cyprus and planting new churches and they were sharing the gospel up north in Galatia and modern-day Turkey. Uh, they were sharing the gospel in northeast or northwest uh, Asia and doing some great work. And this paved the way for two more missionary journeys where Paul, over the course of these three total missionary journeys, would plant dozens of churches in some of the major cities, not just in Asia, but also in Europe. And this would lead to literally tens of thousands of people coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it was the Antioch church that started this missionary movement of Paul's that has become so famous over the last 2,000 years. That Antioch church, man, they were just firing all, all cylinders, man. They were doing so well. They're on fire for the Lord. They're sharing Jesus with everyone. They're sending out the missionaries at the end of chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas come back from that first missionary journey, and these guys are pumped. They come back to the Antioch church, and they're sharing all that God did, the miracles and the salvations and the new churches planted. Planted, And so we get to the end of chapter 14, and we look at it from our vantage point and say, the church at Antioch has got it going on. The church at Antioch, man, they're in a sweet spot. Nothing could go wrong in this church. They were so on fire for the Lord and doing such great work. But then we get to verse 1 of chapter 15, and everything seems to come crashing down. Verse 1 says, Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Have you ever met a group of Christians who were a bunch of wet blankets? Anyone? All two of you, that's great. The rest of you are just being more kind than I am, huh? 
Have you ever met a group of Christians that were a bunch of wet blankets? Man, things are going well. God's moving. He's answering prayer. People are getting saved. People are growing in their faith. And they're like, they've got that Eeyore syndrome. I don't know. It's not so good after all. I'm tired. I'm sick. God's not moving. It'll all end soon enough. What goes up must come down. Sometimes we come across some wet blankets, but sadly, these guys weren't simply wet blankets. They weren't just simply raining on the Antioch Christians parade. These guys were actually filtering in some absolute heresy that had the potential of sabotaging all that God was doing through the church in Antioch. What these brothers were doing, what these men were doing, was potentially devastating. Things had been going so well in the Antioch church, but these few men come in one day and they start to mess it all up. We're not given their names, but if you go down to verse 5, they are called believers in Christ. So it seems clear that these men who came into the church in verse 1, seems clear they were saved. It seems they were Christians. They were just kind of messed up Christians, kind of misguided Christians. Christians who could do more damage to the church from the inside than atheists could ever do to the church from the outside. It's a scary thing sometimes to think about that. We, if we're not careful, sometimes can do more damage to a church from the inside than any atheist can do from the outside. So what was it that these men were teaching the Christians in Antioch? Well, according to verse 1, as we see on the screen there, they said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. By the time we get down to verse 5, they're down in Jerusalem making the same point. They just say it a little differently. In verse 5, they say it this way, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. So I want you to imagine the scene. Imagine this scene. Over the past couple years, hundreds of Greeks in the community of Antioch, in this sin city of the Roman Empire, hundreds have converted and become followers of Jesus Christ. Hundreds of Greeks had come to a saving knowledge of Christ. The veil of ignorance had been taken away. They believed in Jesus and repented from their sins. They got baptized. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. These believers had dedicated the last several years to studying God's Word together and growing in their faith and serving the church and sending out missionaries. When it comes to following Christ, these Christians had been all in. They weren't just part-time followers of Jesus. They were all in, serving Him seven days a week. And then all of a sudden, some brothers from Judea, the region where Christianity began, came in and told them in no uncertain terms, you know what? You aren't really saved. You're not really saved. Believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior isn't enough. Repenting of your sins isn't enough. Getting baptized isn't enough. Obeying Christ's commands isn't enough unless every one of you who's male goes through a circumcision surgery and unless every one of you with Greek background starts obeying every single law in the Old Testament, unless you start doing that, you're going to hell. And imagine how the hearts of those Greek Christians must have dropped. Is it any wonder that we read in verse 2 that this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp 
dispute and debate with them. I bet it did. These yahoos from Judea were standing up in the congregation and saying, Hey, you're all going to hell if you're not circumcised. And Paul immediately stands up and says, The hell you are. They're not going to hell. They've come under the grace of Jesus Christ. And so the circumcision group says, yeah, they are. And Paul says, no, they're not. And they say, yeah, you are. And Paul says, no, you're not. Yeah, you are. No, you're not. Yeah, you are. No, you're And you get the idea. Back and forth, back and forth. And Paul and these men from Judea are butting heads. And so what happens? The church decides, you know what? We need to go down and get answers from the apostles in Jerusalem and those church leaders and have them weigh in on this decision. Warren Wearsby, I think, shares this great insight. It's so good. He says, The progress of the gospel has often been hindered by people with closed minds who stand in front of open doors and block the way for others. Maybe you, like me, over the years have prayed at times that God would open a door for someone you know to hear the gospel. Maybe you pray, God, would you give me an opportunity to share the gospel with my parents that don't know Christ? Would you give me the opportunity to to share the message of salvation with my kids because it seems like they always shut me down and don't want to listen? Would you give me an opportunity to share Christ with my friend or with my coworker? Many of us have prayed that type of prayer in the past. God, would you open a door? Would you open a door? Well, unfortunately, sometimes God does open a door But that doesn't mean that someone won't block the doorway. It happens all the time. God opens the door, but Satan decides to impede what God is doing. God opens a door and Satan can't stop him from opening that door, can he? But Satan oftentimes will send in someone to block the doorway, to impede what God is doing with that open door, and sadly... Many times, Christians within the church are more than willing to be Satan's volunteers to block that doorway that God has opened. If God chooses to open a door, Satan can't stop him. But he sure tries to block what God is doing. I hope and pray that I'm never one of Satan's willing volunteers to block the doorway that God has opened. And I hope that you aren't either. Right there in the great Christian church in Antioch, there was a bottleneck in the doorway and it had to be flushed out as soon as possible. So the church acted quickly. They sent Barnabas and Paul and a few other Antioch Christians along with this group of circumcision preachers down to Jerusalem so that the apostles and the church elders can render a final verdict. Those elders and and those apostles in Jerusalem were kind of like the early Christian Supreme Court. Their decision would be final as to what they were to do about circumcision with these Greeks. So in verses 6 through 18, we read the second part of this passage, the defense, as they make their way down to Jerusalem, and each of those parties makes their case. It says in verse 5, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. So these from the circumcision group, they made their case to the elders and the church leaders and apostles there in Jerusalem. And over the next 13 verses, four key leaders way in. If you look at verses 7 through 11, Peter makes his case for the gospel of grace. He shares his testimony of 
how there in Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit had made it clear to him that he needed to go and share the gospel with Cornelius, the centurion, and his whole household. And so Peter obeyed the Holy Spirit's leading. He went into that house, even though it was full of Gentiles, even though they didn't have kosher food at the table to serve Peter that day. He went in because God told him to. So Peter shares his testimony, and Peter shares a few really insightful things. I want to point out a few of them to you. Verses 8 and 9, Peter says, God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted Cornelius and his family by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Peter makes some great points here. The circumcision preachers couldn't know anybody's heart, could they? Only God can know a heart. So if God chooses to accept someone and save someone, that's His call. It's not their call. It's not my call. It's not your call. It's God's call. Who are we to argue with God? God had made it clear that both Jews and Gentiles could be purified by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, regardless of whether or not they were circumcised and regardless of whether or not they obeyed any of the other Old Testament ceremonial laws. So Peter makes this great point also in verse 10. He says in verse 10, Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? I love what Peter says here. He basically just talks turkey with these Judaizers, with these circumcision preachers. He basically tells them, Come on, guys. You know good and well that there's 613 laws of Moses in the Old Testament, and neither you nor me nor any of our ancestors have ever obeyed all 613 flawlessly. We screw it up. What makes you think the Gentiles are going to be able to obey all those laws? Are you nuts? You're expecting them to abide by a standard that none of us or our ancestors have ever been able to abide by. What are you doing? And so he lays into them a bit, and then next in Verse 12, Barnabas and Paul stand up and they share their testimony of how God was working amazing miracles through them on the mission field. And then after that, there's one final speaker. In verse 19, James shares some wonderful insights. James, we believe, was now the leader of this Jerusalem church. This is not James, the brother of John, son of Zebedee. This was not the apostle James. This was Jesus' half-brother. James. And we know that this half-brother of Jesus, James, during Jesus' ministry, he didn't even believe that Jesus was the Christ. He thought Jesus was nuts. But somewhere between Jesus' three-and-a-half-year ministry and the time that Jesus ascended into heaven, James became convinced that Jesus was the Christ and the Son of the living God. And several years later here, he's risen to become kind of the de facto leader of the Jerusalem church. And so he speaks up. In verse 19 he says, It is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We shouldn't make it difficult for those who are turning to God. I'd like you to spend a moment and meditate on these words. Allow them to really sink in. I don't think that we should make it difficult for the Gentiles who are coming to God. Hmm. 
We shouldn't make it difficult for him. Jesus tells us in Matthew 11.30, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. But would you agree that sometimes Christians put a yoke on new believers that is hard and a burden that is heavy? Sometimes we have someone that has almost no church background and one week after they've accepted Christ and gotten baptized, we expect them to behave like a perfect Christian that's been a Christian for 50 years. Yes, that person has been touched by the grace of God through Christ. Yes, the Holy Spirit has come into them. Yes, they have begun to change. But discipleship is a process. You and I, who've been Christians for a long time, didn't get to this point overnight, did we? It took a lot of time. It took a lot of effort. It took a lot of patience on God's part. And in all likelihood, it took a lot of patience from older and wiser Christians who walked us through that process of discipleship. Here we have these believers coming from Judea and putting this heavy burden on the shoulders of these new Greek Christians. And Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James were saying, What are you guys doing? Jesus said, come to me, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you've made the burden of Jesus hard and the load heavy. You've got to stop it. So often, we have made Jesus' load to be heavy. I don't recall ever meeting a Christian who was claiming that Christians had to all be circumcised. Maybe you've met a Christian that made that case like these here in Acts 15. I don't recall ever meeting someone that said, you know what, you're going to hell if you're not circumcised. I've never met that person. But you know who I have met? I've met Christians that have made it very clear that if I'm not a part of their specific denomination, I'm not going to heaven. The few that come to mind, the Church of Christ across our nation in a lot of ways is getting a bit better at this, but in the past, there have been many non-instrumental Church of Christ that basically had the standpoint, if you have a guitar or a drum set or a piano in the worship service, you're going to hell. Fortunately, most are moving away from that ridiculous dogmatism. Traditionally, the Seventh-day Adventists have dug in their heels and said, you choose to worship on Sunday, can't make it to heaven. That's not the Lord's Day. Saturday is. And they've dug in their heels and said, if you don't do things our way, then I'm sorry, there's no chance of you making it to heaven. I've met some Christians that were pretty dogmatic about Saturday. I've met some Christians that were pretty dogmatic about instruments being used or not used in a worship service. I've met Christians that were pretty dogmatic about if you are reading out of the Bible, and pastor, if you're teaching out of the Bible, it darn well better be the King James Version but not just any King James. It has to be the King James 1611 version because that one is the authorized translation. Is the King James 1611 a good translation? Absolutely. Am I going to hell if I preach out of the NIV 84? I don't think so. Many become very dogmatic about these things and they put a burden on new believers that Jesus never intended to be placed on new believers. You see, many Christians unknowingly make the same basic mistake that the circumcision preachers here in Acts 15 made. 
in the effort to promote righteousness in the church, they heap heavy burdens on new believers that end up doing more harm than good. Many of us hold some very strong opinions about matters of faith and worship. Some of us have some very strong beliefs about speaking in tongues. Some of us have some strong beliefs about free will versus Calvinism. Some of us have some strong beliefs about end times prophecies or about how a worship service should be conducted, uh, what types of songs should be sung, hymns versus choruses, how long the preacher should preach. When I first got to this church 20 years ago, there were a fair amount in the church that said the best sermons that are inspired by God Himself are 20 minutes long and no longer. And so, you know what? Most Sundays I say amen and and preach that 20-minute sermon twice in the same morning. Many have different opinions and beliefs about how Sunday school should be run, about how uh, the staff should operate, about how elders should make decisions, whether or not they should be involved in finances, whether or not there should be congregational votes, whether or not uh, the, the leadership in the church and the, 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 the polity of the church should be one way or another. But when it comes down to it, we have to be very careful. We have to be very careful. Because many that are new to the faith, when we start telling them you have to do this and you have to do that and you have to believe this and you have to believe that, and if you don't... You're in bad shape. The interpretation is, if I don't do all of these things and believe everything just right one week after I'm baptized, then my baptism is null and void. My confession of Christ as Savior is null and void. I guess I'm going to hell if I don't have my act together early on in my Christian walk. You see, our church has had a long-held tradition of holding to this simple mantra. In faith, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, love. That's a wonderful motto to hold on to. In faith, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, love. James was absolutely right. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We have to be very careful about taking our personal convictions in the areas that are not essential to salvation and requiring others to believe the exact same way that I do. Because when we do, we oftentimes muddy the simple message of the grace of Christ. We have to make sure we don't muddy the message. A new Christian walks away with the impression that if he doesn't believe a certain way about the Sabbath day or about speaking in tongues or about Jesus' second coming or about whatever, that he's going to hell. We cannot heap burdens on shoulders that Jesus never intended. James proceeds to give four simple recommendations, four guidelines for these new Greek Christians in Antioch and in other cities where Greeks were coming to a saving knowledge of Christ. These simple four things. Number one, don't eat food polluted by idols. Number two, avoid all sexual immorality. Number three, don't eat the meat of strangled animals. Number four, don't eat food with blood in it. In verses 19 through 30. 132, the apostles and church leaders render their decision and that decision is taken back to those Greek Christians in Antioch. They started the letter that they had written to those Christians in Antioch by addressing them as believers. In other words, they acknowledged from the start of their letter that they were truly saved. 
Next, they called out the circumcision preachers as rogue preachers who were not sanctioned by the apostles to preach what they were preaching. And then they reiterated those four simple guidelines that James, the leader of that Jerusalem church, had recommended. Same four guidelines, they're just in a different order than James had given them a few verses earlier. Number one, don't eat food polluted by idols. Number two, don't eat food with blood in it. Number three, don't eat the meat of strangled animals. And number four, avoid all sexual immorality. The first three rules that we find in this letter were dietary rules, dealing with kosher food and dealing with food that was somehow involved in idol worship. And so those were temporary guidelines for the church at this point in time as we had this new phase in the life of the Christian church where Gentiles were coming to Christ at the same time that Jews were coming to Christ and they had to somehow figure out how to get along together, how to eat meals together, how to take communion together, how to do ministry together. And so they give these three dietary guidelines so that Jews wouldn't be disenfranchised by the way that Gentiles were eating And so this isn't because these three dietary guidelines are designed for you and me 2,000 years later. This was so that these Christians, Jew and Gentile, could get along and do fellowship and ministry together so that no one would stumble in their Christian walk and their conscience be compromised. And so what a beautiful thing. You know what, Gentiles? I'm asking you to meet the Jewish people halfway. Gentile Christians, I want you to step it up. You can get by without eating meat sacrificed to idols. It may cost a little more at the meat market to have more kosher meat, but you guys can handle it. You know what? It may be a little inconvenient to have your steak cooked a little longer. I know you might like it medium rare and you like a T-bone steak sitting in a nice pool of blood because it makes your meat a little moister and it's juicier. And, man, that's the way you eat a steak. But you know what? It's not going to kill you to have it done medium well and have that plate juice-free underneath your steak. You know what? It's not going to kill you to avoid these things because fellowshipping with the believers and doing ministry together so that people can be snatched from the grasp of Satan and the flames of hell to experience salvation in Jesus Christ and the gift of heaven is in the long run so worth it. So he gives them these three dietary guidelines. And then finally... That fourth rule is for all time, avoid all sexual immorality. That is a clear command for Christians of all times in all places. That includes fornication, which is premarital sex. It includes adultery, which is extramarital sex. It includes homosexuality, which of course is same-sex relations. It It includes polygamy. Anything else that's outside of God's parameters for sexual relations between one man and one woman together in marriage committed for life. Anything outside of that sexually, he says, must be avoided. And so these are the guidelines they gave them. Paul and Barnabas, along with several other church leaders from Jerusalem, delivered the letter to the Antioch Christians. And I want you to see what verse 31 says. Look at that again. Verse 31. The people read it. And we're glad for its encouraging message. Amen? 
There they were, kind of hanging in the balance, wondering if that doorway God had opened was going to stay permanently blocked. They were thrilled that they had been given an opportunity to confess Christ. They were thrilled that they had been allowed to be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They were thrilled that they were able to send out missionaries into their own town to lead Greeks to Christ. They were thrilled that they were able to send out Paul and Barnabas into northwest Europe and eventually northwest Asia and eventually into Europe to share the good news of Jesus Christ. They were thrilled that they were able to do this, but they were at a standstill at this point in time. And all of a sudden, with the reading of this one letter, the obstacle is removed and the doorway is wide open once again to continue that great ministry. These men had created a bottleneck in God's doorway, but the bottleneck had been removed as these men were given the old heave-ho. And we find out in the verses that follow, Paul and Barnabas get their heads together and decide to head back out on the mission field. And within a short time of this letter having been read, within a short time of that bottleneck having been removed, Paul and Barnabas set off in separate ways to spread the gospel in Asia and Europe. And God blessed their ministry more than ever before. God was working through them. And thousands more men and women and children were saved because the church didn't allow the enemy of our souls to block the door that God had opened. May we always pray for open doors for ministry and keep ourselves and others from blocking the doorway once God has opened it. We are a church heading out on a brand new adventure in just three weeks, believing that as we expect great things from God, God will allow us to do great things for God. We're going to do some great things as a church together. We've done some great things in the past, but greater things are yet to come. As we trust Him, as we follow Him, and as we look for those open doors and walk through them in Jesus' name. Father, we thank You for Your goodness and Your grace in Christ. We thank You for Your mercy on us, giving giving us opportunities to do good and heartfelt ministry giving us opportunities to be a blessing, giving us opportunities, Lord, to go to where the people are. And it still, Lord, blows me away that in three weeks, Lord, we'll be in a location on Sunday mornings that has more than six times as many people living within five miles as this location here does. I thank You, Lord, for this opportunity. And we know, Lord, that with responsibilities with these opportunities I should say come these responsibilities and so Lord as you give us this opportunity Lord I pray that we would walk through it faithfully walking through that open door that you're opening for us that we would be found faithful Lord to share your good news to remove obstacles that stand in the way to unify together Lord to do greater works than we've ever done before for your honor and glory God, may we walk in that proud tradition of William Carey, expecting great things from God and attempting great things for God. Help us, Lord, to go to this community with a simple, light message of Jesus Christ. That your grace is available to all. And Lord, as they come to Christ, and many still stumble and fall, 
may we lovingly and graciously and gently lead them into a deeper walk with you as you work inside them for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.